When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 20th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am so very honored to be joined by Dan Rather, one of the greatest TV newsmen in the history of the business. He spent 44 years at CBS News, eventually rising to the anchor chair that was occupied before him by Walter Cronkite. He also worked at 60 Minutes and 60 Minutes 2, where in 2004, a segment that he reported about George W. Bush's National Guard service caused a considerable amount of controversy and led CBS to effectively push him out the door. The story of what Rather reported in partnership with his longtime producer Mary Mapes is the subject of a new film called Truth, in which Rather is played by Robert Redford and Mapes is played by Kate Blanchett. The film, which is the directorial debut of James Vanderbilt, looks into how they came to the story and how others responded to it and asks many questions about the state of journalism today. It's caused plenty of controversy and debate since its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival in September, where I saw it, and rather, somewhat surprisingly to me and others has not been shy about engaging in the resulting conversations. But before we talk any further about Rather and what he experienced and what he thinks about it, let's first quickly recap what's happened in the world of awards since our last episode, as we always do. To begin with, everyone, and I mean everyone, is talking about Star Wars, The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams' film, which has just dominated at the box office since its midnight screenings on Thursday night going into Friday and throughout the entire opening weekend, making a record-breaking $248 million over the weekend and continuing to go strong since. I'm not sure I'd want to be Concussion or Joy, which are slated to open on Christmas against Star Wars, because even in its second weekend, it looks like it may continue to go very strong. The Hateful Eight and The Revenant, meanwhile, are going to be opening in limited release on Friday before expanding in the weeks to come. Speaking of The Hateful Eight and The Revenant, it will be interesting to see if, and if so, to what degree their box office takes are impacted by the fact that screeners of them have been leaked online. This was a big concern for both The Weinstein Company, which is behind The Hateful Eight, and Fox, which is behind The Revenant, and that's why they were very guarded about sending out screeners before their movie's openings. In the case of The Hateful Eight, it looks like a screener that was intended for the CEO of Alcon Entertainment didn't make it to its destination and was leaked by someone else after being signed for by his assistant. An investigation is ongoing, and we will monitor what's happening with that. But meanwhile, screeners are factoring into this Oscar race in a way that nobody wanted them to. 
But back for now to Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is not only a giant commercial hit, but is also doing extremely well with critics. It's at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's also looking like it may be an awards movie. We can say that because two of the groups that are among the most accurate at predicting Oscar success have both now lined up behind Star Wars. The first is the Broadcast Film Critics Association. Last week on Monday, that group announced its nominations, voting for which took place before any of its members had had the opportunity to see Star Wars. Apparently, the BFCA's board of directors were contacted by a lot of members after they did see Star Wars, lamenting the fact that they had not been able to vote for it. And so the BFCA's board of directors took an extraordinary action, one that they last took 15 years ago, and invited members to vote about whether or not they wished to nominate Star Wars retroactively as their 11th Best Picture nominee. The results were announced on Tuesday morning, and indeed, Star Wars was added to the list. The other notable group to get behind Star Wars was the American Film Institute, which announced its nominees for the AFI Awards. Its annual list of 10 films and 10 TV shows that it will note in its almanac were chosen as the year's best. The film jury this year made some interesting decisions, including, among others, Star Wars, which it held its voting open to consider, and also Mad Max Fury Road and Straight Outta Compton. Interestingly enough, not on the list was The Revenant, which most people assumed was a sure bet for a slot. But then again, it's dangerous to read too much into the AFI Awards because a jury of only 15 or 16 people decided the film awards and only five of them are members of the Academy. One thing that indisputably was the decision of the Academy was the foreign language Oscar shortlist, which was announced on Thursday and included just about all of the top contenders that people thought might make the list. Among the nine are two films about the Holocaust, the presumptive frontrunner, Hungary's Son of Saul, as well as Germany's Labyrinth of Lies. And also on the list is France's Mustang, which is a personal favorite that I highly encourage people to check out. And finally, there's been a flurry of activity here in Los Angeles as people are trying to pack in as much as they can before the holidays. What's going to happen immediately after the holidays is going to be mainly concentrated in New York, where on the 4th and the 5th, the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle, respectively, will present their awards, which many of the honorees will be flying out to collect in person. But back to Dan Rather. Rather, who is now 84 but looks 20 years younger and is still working, increasingly in the digital realm, was good enough to come by our studio to talk to me for about an hour about his remarkable career, the film... And yes, the controversy that inspired it. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. First, let me thank you so much for coming in and doing this. I have to take a personal point of privilege to say that you uh, are a big part of why I'm interested in journalism, why I pursue journalism, our little subsection of it here in entertainment. And uh, every night we watch the CBS Evening News. Well, thank you. I'm honored by that. uh, Thank you very much. And I appreciate your time in doing this. Thank you. Totally. And I have to say, anytime I ever, uh, you know, have the occasion, I remember since I was little to say good evening, (laughs) I would do the Dan Rather rendition of good evening. You ask my parents, you can ask anybody. So I finally get a chance to say good evening, Dan Rather. Good evening. (laughs) (laughs) So to begin with, I, I wanted to ask, you know, we'll get to truth, of course, but I want to ask you, how does a kid who came from a very humble working class background from everything I've read wind up interested in news and pursuing a career in news? What was the what was the root of it? Well, first of all, I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you. I've never quite known why, uh, but I've been very lucky and mightily blessed. I've always wanted to be a reporter. When we played those games uh as children do. Somebody wants to be an Indian chief. Somebody wants to be an airplane pilot. It was 
pre-astronaut days. I always said I wanted to be a reporter. Uh, I've never quite known why. I have a theory, but it's only a theory, that uh, both of my parents uh, were avid newspaper readers. Uh, the time is the 1930s during the Depression. Neither one of them had finished high school, which was not unusual in our time and place. The place was Texas and during the Depression years. But they were such avid newspaper readers. I think what must have happened when I was very, very young is because our house was filled with newspapers, they read newspapers, discussed uh, what was in the papers, that I came to believe it must be important. Why would my parents be spending all this time if it weren't important? So um, I began to dream. My dream was, uh, it seemed impossible at the time, uh, but I thought being a big byline reporter for the Houston Chronicle or Houston Post or Houston Press, I grew up in Houston, uh -huh. Uh, was the most to which I could aspire. Uh, so I trained myself to be a, a print reporter, uh -huh. which I was in the early days, uh, but I was a, a spectacularly bad speller, <laughs> which is a, a tough flaw to have if you want to be a reporter. That's true. If we'd had spell check, I probably would have stayed in the newspaper business, but <laughs> we, didn't have, we didn't have spell check. So... Um, a very friendly uh, city editor of the Houston Chronicle where I had a tryout took me aside and said, Dan, you're not going to make it. <laughs> you spend all your time over the dictionary. We right. can't afford to have that. But he arranged for me to get a job in radio, uh, which was very fortunate for me. And radio had been important to you growing up, right, because TV was not a presence in your life. Well, that's true. You know, among the many ways that I've been, as I'm fond of saying, lucky and blessed, is that I started in print then wandered into radio during the heyday of radio, uh -huh. which gave way to the television era, and now has given way to the digital yes. era, which I'm trying to find my way in the digital age. But I'm, uh, I feel very lucky to live this long and be able to live through these different eras. Sure. Now, interestingly enough, I, if my information's correct, we have rheumatic fever as something to thank for your first introduction to CBS, right? This was That's true. And this is another way I was really lucky. Yeah. Uh, I had rheumatic fever. I contacted rheumatic fever when I was just getting out of my 10th year, going into 11th year. At that time, uh, rheumatic fever was every mother's terror, second only to polio. Uh, it attacks your lower extremities and works its way up. And most people who have rheumatic fever wind up with some kind of heart ailment because of that. It was incurable uh, once we got to antibiotics after World War II. It uh, was virtually wiped out. But uh, as a consequence, I was bedridden. The doctor told my mother it's not curable, and the only thing you can do is put him to bed and keep him to bed so he doesn't move and doesn't damage his heart. So I was bedridden for the better part of a year, for, for a year first, when I was 11. And uh, then it came back on me fairly shortly when I was 12 and 13. So the point of going through this rather long story is I was completely bedridden, but this corresponded roughly with the start of World War II. And I lived by the radio. Television had been invented, but was not nearly prevalent in the country. So I had the radio speaker all day and half the night, every night, so I heard the voices of Edward R. Murrow, 
Eric Severide, Charles Collingwood, Howard K. Smith, the legendary Murrow Boys, and became transfixed, and why wouldn't I? They were in faraway places with strange-sounding names doing important work and doing great journalism, and I got riveted to that. But even after that, I still aspired to be a print reporter. Mm -hmm. But I will say, looking back on it, it was a very important part of my life uh, because at that age, and without being overly dramatic about it, uh, I had to ask myself, is this, is this what life is going to be? Am I going to be bedridden for a long mm -hmm. time? And so you think about uh, mortality, uh, which is not that usual at that age. But more importantly, I heard these great radio voices and these great reporters, and that inspired me. Yeah. So having gone from print journalism to radio, what was the beginning of TV for you, TV work for you? Well, it's said of me, because it's true, I don't always learn fast, but I learn good. Right. I love doing radio, uh, and I thought... I'd spend the rest of my career in radio. But television began to come on, and I was slow to recognize the importance of television. A smarter young man would have said television is the future, get into it, but I didn't say that. At a local station, Houston KHOU, which was the CBS affiliate, uh, it was a very poor third in the market, but they offered me a job to go from radio into television in 19, late 1959. I almost didn't take it, because I love radio. But uh, I was fairly recently married, had two children, two very young children, and the pay of the television station was slightly better than the radio station. So after talking to my wife, Jean, with whom I've now been married, what, 59 oh years? Oh my God, congratulations. Um, that I took the job in, in television. And it was a great experience for me, a great learning experience. It's hard to imagine, but when I took the job in 1960, not nearly everybody had a television mm -hmm. set. But television sets, the cost of them it was increasing lower, so more and more people were getting it. My point is, just at the time when television was beginning to become the dominant place for entertainment and news, correspondent with my taking the job in, in Houston yes. uh, at, that, at that station, at the CBS station. And uh, again, I was very lucky. Uh, the Texas Gulf Coast is hurricane country. I had grown up with the, the legend and the mystery of great hurricanes going all the way back to Native American right. times. And so a great uh, hurricane, still the largest hurricane on record in the Gulf Coast, uh, named Carla came. And because I knew a few things about hurricanes, I mean this in no self-serving way, our coverage was the best it was. Yeah. And uh, it became a national story, and the people in New York picked up some of our local coverage, and as a result of that, they offered me a job with CBS. And at that time, when you started to go to work for Big CBS, you still had a bit more of a southern accent, right? I remember seeing clips, and it was Hurricane, right? <laughs> yeah. Hurricane Carla. Uh, you have a good ear. <laughs> That's true. But I was, again, once again, very lucky. Because I grew up on the Texas coast, Texas accents along the coast are not as pronounced as they are inland. And I did have a Texas accent, Hurricane instead of Hurricane tended to say uh, eyes for ease rather than saying 10 to say 10. 
uh, dropping G's. I'm going instead of going, that right. sort of thing. Uh, but when, once I got to CBS, uh, that began to wear off because, you know, I worked with and I walked with legends at CBS yes. News. Uh, I, I did meet Edward Romero. Charles Collingwood became a mentor of mine. These are iconic totally. CBS News names. But I also realized another thing. It, uh, I can't say I was arrogant or conceited, but by the time I got to CBS News, I was a pretty experienced reporter. I'd been reporting for 12 years professionally, and I thought I was pretty good. I thought I could write pretty good. I thought I could report with anybody. And when I began walking the halls of these legends, I realized how much better my game had better get and better get in a hurry or I wasn't going to make it. Well, the the thing that helped to relatively early on make you a, a standout at CBS was your coverage of the Kennedy assassination, right? You were, I, I wanted to ask you, how did you happen to be there and what did how did that day November 22nd, 63, sort of shape you. The Kennedy assassination happened in November November 22nd, Mm -hmm. uh, 1963. And I was still a very junior CBS News correspondent. My main job was to cover Dr. Martin Luther King and the early stages of the civil rights movement. When President Kennedy scheduled what was supposed to be a routine political trip to Texas preparatory to the 1964 what was to be his re-election campaign, uh, it was a routine trip up for a president. Because I'd grown up in Texas, they called me. I was working in the Deep South, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and they asked me to go to Texas to arrange the CBS News coverage. Uh, you might say, well, you were a junior correspondent. Wasn't that a big assignment? It was not seen as a big assignment. Uh, so I went and set up uh, the coverage. And President Kennedy, you may recall, was to visit um, several Texas cities, all the big ones, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, Houston. And so I arranged our coverage, and I went to Dallas just before the president went to use Dallas as a base. And I chose Dallas partly because I said to myself, and I said to the people I was working for, if if anything is to happen, it's more likely to happen in Dallas. Long, boring story about why, but Dallas had a reputation of being very conservative, if you prefer the word, or reactionary if you don't. Um, But I didn't imagine anybody to take a shot at the president. That wasn't in my mind at all. It was just there had been some incidents with Adlai Stevenson and a president of a previous election in which uh, someone had hit uh, Lyndon Johnson with a sign. It was, it was not a good environment. So I thought, well, if anything's to happen, it's likely to happen in Dallas. But I emphasize, uh, I didn't have in mind an assassination yeah. attempt. So that occasioned my being there that day. The work that you did on that day, how would you say it changed you as a reporter and it changed the way that people regarded you as a reporter? Well, fair to say that when you're on scene and you become the face and voice of the network's coverage for a story of that magnitude, it increased uh, one's identification, if you will, that while I was doing things for 
uh, first Douglas Edwards in the CBS Evening News and then Walter Cronkite in the Evening News, and I was on television, I was not a recognizable correspondent. When the Kennedy assassination happened and suddenly I was on the air for long hours at a time, uh, it's fair to say uh, that that vaulted me into a different place, if you will. Uh, It was a break. I paused because you don't like to say that a tragedy is a break, but in a professional sense, uh, it was it was a, a break. And well now, earned, though, because you were, in fact, the. I, and I'm curious to know how you were able to do this, but you were, I believe, were the first to actually report as the fact that he had passed away. Is yes, that the case. Yeah, that's true. That our CBS News team, and which I was the leader of that, uh, we broke the story that the president not only had been shot but had been killed. Some. I don't know, 15, 18 minutes before the official announcement. Uh, So let me put it this way. It didn't hurt my career. I don't like to talk in careerist terms. It didn't hurt my career because I was on the air so much. The more important thing is a change in American journalism. Before the Kennedy assassination, newspapers, a combination of newspapers and radio, were still the places where most people got most of their news. After the assassination, we moved into the television news era. You can chart the beginning of the television news dominance from the Kennedy assassination forward. Not, I shouldn't emphasize, just my own coverage. All networks, there were only three at the time, uh, CBS, NBC, and to a degree, ABC. ABC was still somewhat behind the two. But from that moment on, television news became dominant, became the place where most Americans got most of their news, at least their early news, from television as opposed to radio and newspapers. Sure. I wonder if I can just very briefly mention a few of the other sort of highlights of your coverage before you became the anchor at CBS News. Just Briefly, you know, a, th- a thought or two about what you most remember or took away from, from these various things, because right. I think they come to a lot of people's <laughs> minds when they hear the name Dan Rather. So to begin with, your nine months, I believe, in, in Vietnam. Yes, I spent almost a year in Vietnam, uh, late 1965 uh, until fairly late 1966. Looking back on it, I was unprepared uh, to cover the war. I wish I'd read more Homer, wish I'd read more Thucydides and Herodotus. Sorry to say I had not. So I was plunged. I asked to go to Vietnam. It was then it remained a volunteer assignment at CBS News. Uh, you You were not forced to go. Fair to say that it was expected that you'd serve some time. But I recognize, I'm often wrong about things, but I recognize that this Vietnam could become one of the great stories of my generation, and I wanted to go. But in the beginning, uh, the network policy was not to send uh, men who had families. But the war began exploding, uh, literally, uh, the American escalation of troop commitments. and. Not everybody was prepared to go, and so I asked again to go, and I asked a second time, uh, they sent me. Uh, And 
that coverage, that time I spent in Vietnam, the first time I was back another three times after that, but never for as long a period as that nine to 10 months, uh, 65, 66. And to be plunged into that green jungle hell uh, was, fair to say, was a new experience for me and a tremendous learning experience. Did it, I wonder if, you know, you've, you've covered many horrific things over the years, but there are scenes that I remember where, including one where you asked the cameraman not to record it as you were helping somebody who had been injured. It, they, of course, did air it. The reason I bring it up is that it showed some of the, the horrors that you witnessed. And I wonder, with that and just generally, were you very much able to go on with your own business without having these things bother you? Very much so. War coverage was almost totally different than in Vietnam as a correspondent, and particularly a television correspondent, because in television you have to get the pictures. If you're in print, you could stay in Saigon and sort of do your stuff out of there. But particularly with television, you had to go where the action was. But the military's attitude toward the press during the Vietnam War was almost completely different from what it has been ever since then and partly because of Vietnam, that we as reporters could go any place that we wanted to go. We were basically in the hitchhiking business, hitchhiked on helicopters, hitchhiked on tanks, armed convoys, that kind of thing. And as a consequence, we saw a great deal of the war, uh, all the way from the DMZ down to the Delta, which even most U.S. military commanders never saw. So that's the way it was. We were shooting film, not videotape. And, you know, film has to be processed. And I won't take you all the way through it, but it was just totally different. We, you go in the field and sometimes stay in the field for six, seven weeks, and you film stories. You write the script there. You put them in a bright grapefruit bag for shipping, you throw them on a helicopter and hope they will get to Tokyo, <laughs> transship from Tokyo to New York to process the film. But the I had covered war before uh, for CBS News. In the summer before I went to Vietnam, I covered the India-Pakistan uh-huh. War of 1965, in which Pakistan invaded India. But my time there was somewhat limited. And it also was that war— the India-Pakistan War was more like World War II, set-piece battles, tank battles with air support in the open. The jungle guerrilla warfare of Vietnam was totally different. Uh, To say I was shocked and appalled uh, would understate it. I said I was unprepared for Uh it because I didn't know all of my history. Um, But part of what it taught me was the how savage warfare is and how chaotic it is. Uh-huh. You know, when you see it on television, it's not the same as being there. Television t- tends to flatten everything out. Whereas when you're on scene, it has a depth to it. And learning the realities of war, of how truly brutal it is, and the fact that it is a fact that those who suffer most in war are the children, the women, and old people. Uh, and you, one saw things that you could not imagine. 
and uh, it made a very deep impression on me. The last of, of many that I could mention, but one that I'll mention before you became an anchor was the incident that earned you, I think, a very fond nickname, Gunga Dan. If you could share about how it was that you came to be in Afghanistan during the occupation by the Soviets. Well, the Soviets invaded uh, Afghanistan at Christmas time, 1979. They had tried to take the country through political means, and they were fairly successful at it, but the pace was too slow for the rulers of what was in the Soviet Union. So they invaded uh, just about at Christmas in late 79. And I saw a small piece in the paper. I was working 60 minutes full time during that period. Mm-hmm. And so again, I said to myself, you know, this could be a, a decisive period um, in the history of the Cold War. Not because I was particularly smart, but this is what reporters do. Right. You know, you'd note that I haven't told you about the times I was wrong. <laughs> But at any rate, uh, so I wanted to go into Afghanistan, and we were told it was impossible. Uh, but we, when they, anyway, we went to Peshawar, Pakistan, to see if we could manage a way to get in. And we were told by American intelligence agents and others, number one, you can't get in, and number two, if you can't get in, you won't come out alive. Uh, but we found a way in. We walked into Afghanistan and were in country, I think, 18 days, and walked out. May I ask what that way in was? Well, um, you know, the the Soviets were overpowering. But what I learned uh, in Afghanistan, and we were the first Western journalists to go into Afghanistan, we had tried to get—we talked about, well, maybe we could drive in, impossible— Maybe we could helicopter in. No, because the Soviets controlled the airspace. Well, maybe we could get an airplane to fly at some altitude. And I know it sounds ridiculous, sounds ridiculous because it was. We even asked one point, well, could we jump in? Could we parachute in? Uh, and we're told, forget it. Uh, but uh, we walked in through the Khyber Pass, famed Khyber Pass, and walked, when we came out, came out the same way. But inside Afghanistan, if the story had value, and I think it did have value because no one had been inside from Western journalism, was that while the Soviets were dominating their invasion, they were doing so primarily because the Afghan resistance fighters feared the helicopters more than any other thing, and they had no way to knock the helicopters down. And we came out, the thrust of our report was if the Mujahideen, as they were called, the Afghan resistance fighters, if they were given the weapons to knock down the helicopters, you know, they might resist the Soviets. Uh, American policy, U.S. policy at the time was, we're not going to have anything to do with Afghanistan because it's in the Soviet sphere of influence, and besides that, they're going to overwhelm them. We came out and reported, wait a minute, it's not necessarily true that the Soviets will prevail, Oh, eventually, the United States gave the Afghan resistance fighters against the Soviets shoulder-mounted uh, anti-aircraft uh, weapons, which turned the tide of the war. Sure. 
So for you, very shortly after that, I think a year after that, you were asked to become the anchor of the CBS Evening News. And I wonder for you, had that always been a great ambition of yours? And and what did you find to be the best and worst parts of no longer being out (laughs) in the field? Because I know that was clearly a big part of your pleasure in reporting. Well, as to the first part of that question, the answer is no, that I thought I had the best job in the world. Uh, I was a full-time correspondent for 60 minutes, traveled the world. In my dream, after I got to CBS News, I wanted to be a White House correspondent. I wanted to be a combat correspondent. I mean, that's the way you made your chops. Uh, And I didn't dream of being anchor of the CBS Evening News. And it was pretty well established, or seemed to be, that they already had a succession in mind, and I was not part of that succession. Uh, But it was only fairly late, in the late 1970s, when there began to be a few newspaper articles and others speculating about Walter Cronkite wanted to get out. He wanted to to go out on top, and his time was coming to do that. And it was pictured as a race, who was going to succeed Cronkite? At that point, uh, Richard Liebner, who was my agent, uh, talked to me about the chair, and I said to him, I don't think this is probable. But at any rate, uh, one small thing, that I was named to succeed Walter Cronkite. Please note I didn't say replace Walter Cronkite. Nobody replaces a legend. I I was named to succeed Walter Cronkite in 1980 before I went into Uh. Afghanistan. And the only reason I mentioned that is because the network didn't think have, my having been named to succeed Walter Cronkite, they were not all that fond of my going into Afghanistan. Uh, but I did go directly to the president of CBS News and tell him I really wanted to go, and to his everlasting credit, a man named Bill Leonard allowed me to go. So with that small thing, yeah. that um, now as to your question, uh, that I was a a line reporter, a line correspondent, a field correspondent for CBS News for almost 20 years before I was named to succeed Walter Cronkite. And frankly, I didn't have a full idea of what I was getting into. But fortunately, and this was very fortunate indeed, I did say to myself, there's no there's no possibility I can be another Walter Cronkite, quote-unquote. There's going to be another one. What I better do is be the best Dan Rather I can be. And uh, I think I'm at a, I thought, and I still think I'm at my best in the field. So I was looking for a way to take the evening news to the news. Before that, the evening news, the news had come to the CBS Evening News, if you're with me on this metaphor. And the technology of uh, satellite coverage, miniaturization of equipment, portable telephones, not cell phones, but portable telephones, corresponded roughly with my taking the evening news in 1981. I was named in 1980 to succeed Walter Cronkite. I took the chair in uh, 1981. Uh-huh. So we, that is those of us on the evening news, came up with the idea, well, perhaps we could do a, a version of a mobile anchor. I recognize that's uh, an oxymoron. <laughs> but the idea... That because, here's the point, because the technology had reached a point where it was possible to do the evening news from any place on planet Earth, virtually, the idea was, well, when big news breaks, when really big news breaks, uh, 
we won't do the broadcast from in studio in New York. We will go to the place where it is, Paris, Berlin, uh, Iraq, what have you. So we pioneered what became known as the mobile anchor. And that was fortunate for me because it gave me a chance to use field reporting skills and also where my heart was. An important part of being an anchor is uh, to have credibility. It's all important to be authentic. And I think that it played into the authenticity of the CBS Evening News. Look, I wasn't born a natural a natural anchor person, and I, I think it can be validly argued that in terms of sheer presenting still uh, skills of sitting behind an anchor desk and reading off a teleprompter, I wasn't then, and I haven't been since the best at doing that. So if you take my point, that um, play to your strengths. Our strength was in the field, and that led to pioneering this concept of uh, the mobile anchor. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What also coincided with your taking the anchor seat, I think, was the beginning or the, the rise of cable as well. And so suddenly these three networks that had reigned for, for up to that point were getting a lot of different competition. And I wonder how you felt that or felt and feel that change the the job of the evening news and just news in general well the the rise of a combination of satellite and cable news satellite of course uh, being people get news off the satellite itself we weren't smart enough by we we at CBS and for that matter at the other network CBS NBC and ABC in the beginning didn't realize how fast cable and satellite news channels would grow. In the early going, CNN was seen as not a factor. We were wrong about that, of course, very wrong. As the years went on and cable channels began to proliferate, along with satellite uh, channels, uh, it changed the competitive dynamic And over a long period of time, we're now talking 8, 10, 12 years, it resulted in a diminution of the standards that uh, the competitive pit, the competitive arena grew much larger with cable news led by CNN. And as the competitive arena became larger, competition became fiercer. And as it became more fierce, the standards begin to, to reduce. 
that, for example, on the evening news, we would lead maybe three nights in a, lo- in a row with international news, what used to be called foreign news. Somebody from the front office of CBS News would be around saying, Dan, here are the ratings, and you have led the broadcast, first thing on the broadcast, for three nights in a row, international news. Yes, we have done that because it was the most important thing mm-hmm. happening. Well, your competition has led with domestic stories, and they have done better with that. So we're not telling you what to do, <laughs> but it would be a good idea if you thought about leading less with foreign news as an example. Another example would be soft features, news you can use, celebrity interviews. They would say, you're not using many of those. Your competition is increasingly using some. We led in the ratings for almost all of the 1980s, but the other two, basically ABC and NBC, were catching up mm-hmm. with us uh, to some degree. And, well, you see the point was, can't you do a little more softer stuff in the back of the broadcast? The, these are the ways in which I say the standards were diminished. Yeah. They're also, because cable news, and again, particularly CNN, this is not being critical of them. I, in fact, admire them and respect them quite a bit. But they're on the air all the time. So they have a deadline every minute, if you will, whereas with the evening news, the pattern had been at 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, some stations, some places 5.30 at night. That's the one time. That's your deadline. So the dynamic in the business became you have a deadline every nanosecond, not just at 6.30 at night. And that also led to a diminution of standards, I think inevitably led to it. Well, the last question before we get to the the specific topic of everything related to truth is one of these cable networks that that emerged in those years has taken to sort of uh, championing the idea that there's some sort of a liberal bias in the media general, the mainstream media, as if they're not a part of it. And I wonder, in your opinion, from having seen this as up close as anyone, is there any legitimacy to, to that, or, or is it just sort of a, some other form of resentment? Well, I'm really glad you asked the question, because I think even at this late date, we're now in the middle of the second decade of the 21st century, there's a good deal of misunderstanding about this business of labels, liberal, conservative, reactionary, progressive, such labels, that I grew up uh, in in journalism, in American journalism, in which the backbone of journalism was that as a reporter, you should try to be an honest broker of information insofar as it's humanly possible, recognizing it's not possible every day, every second, every story, to set your own biases and uh, your own prejudices aside. And as honestly and directly as possible, to give people the information they need. Now, politicians for a long while, certainly going back deep into the radio era, they love to blame somebody else other than themselves. And the press, now what we call the media, is always handy. So particularly during coverage of the civil rights period in the early 1960s, easy to forget how controversial that was. Uh, CBS News led in coverage of that. We didn't lead in coverage of everything, but we led in coverage of that. Uh, 
That was the beginning of what had started in the Joseph McCarthy era of the 1950s, a, a strand of politician who began to say, the problems are not the problems. The problem are the people who call attention to the problem. And if they don't call attention to the problem in the way I, Mr. Politician, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, whatever, then I'm going to accuse the press of doing something. To cut to the chase, this is a myth about liberal bias. And I recognize any number of your listeners were saying, well, here goes old liberal left-wing, <laughs> communist, socialist, <laughs> Bolshevik, Dan Rather right. talking that. But, uh, you know, I care about journalism. Right. I have a lot of flaws, but I have a passion for journalism. I have a passionate belief in the importance of journalism. And uh, overwhelmingly, the reporters I've worked with over the years, going all the way back to the early 1950s, are trying to be honest brokers of information. That's what I have tried to be. Now, others will have to judge how well or how poorly I've done it. But it, what is true, and I, do, I also think fuels some of this, well, reporters are, quote, liberal or, quote, to the left, any reporter worthy of the name has served an apprenticeship which includes seeing the underside of American society. You cover the police beat. You know what happens in the police station after midnight on Saturday nights. You know what the charity hospital emergency room looks like on your average night. And you see maybe what I can call a Dickensian side of American life that most Americans don't see. And that does lead to empathy. I've tried to choose the word carefully. Empathy for the, for the downtrodden, for the hungry, the homeless, the heartbroken, uh, the helpless, the voiceless, and people who believe they've lost all hope. And you begin to say as a journalist, you know, these stories don't get covered enough. And that leads some particularly partisan, political, and ideologically committed people to say they're, quote, anti-capitalist, for example. So uh, the best I can do is just bear witness to the fact, and it is a fact, that it's changed somewhat in recent years. But the idea of, of a reporter taking the position, listen, because I'm I can't possibly be without prejudice, without bias. Just state them out front and just give you my opinion and run everything through filter. That's never been my way as a reporter. I recognize that I, you know, I set before you with a reputation. Uh, I've made my mistakes and have my <coughs> wounds, some of them open, some of them self-inflicted. But a lot of that comes from covering controversial stories. You cover the civil rights movement at a time when it's a very controversial movement. You cover the Vietnam War. You cover the widespread criminal conspiracy known as Watergate. Um, and a certain segment of partisan political American life says, you know, this guy's, he's got an agenda. My only agenda has, all it's ever been, is to try to bear witness to what I see. But that does include bearing witness to what I see among the homeless, the hungry, sure. and the down-and-out people. Sure. 
Well, I want to ask you about the relationship that's at the center of the movie Truth, your relationship with Mary Mapes, who I think for, I can't remember how many years was a producer of yours and close collaborator. And I guess I'd like to know how that came to be such a strong relationship and also when you first learned that that she was on this National Guard story, if any if there was any sense that it was different or if it was just another one of the many things you'd collaborated on? Well, first, I worked with Mary Mapes uh, and worked very close, closely with her um, for at least 15 years, uh-huh. and I think longer than that. And uh, let's have this understood from the beginning. Mary Mapes is a hell of a reporter. She's one of the great television reporters of her generation. And one reason she was great is because she would always take the tough ones. In fact, she sought out the tough ones. And when you do what I call deep digging investigative reporting, that is you're looking into stories that powerful people don't want out, you know that you're gonna face controversy. You know that you're gonna at some point have to face the furnace and take the heat. Mary welcomed those kind of stories as did I, that I think if you want to do quality journalism with integrity, journalism that counts, journalism that matters, that you have to want to do those stories. Inevitably, a bond develops when you do, particularly when you do those kind of stories, that bonding is is strong with reporters in general, but particularly when you do the what I call handling hot lead, uh-huh. that is. Like Abu Ghraib, right? Like a number of the things you, yes. you guys did together. And uh, Mary and I both came up at a time at CBS. I'm much older than she is, but uh, CBS News had a history and a tradition of taking on the tough stories. I mentioned Joe McCarthy, civil rights, Vietnam, and so forth. And the, the history and tradition of the company had long been, for well over half a century, that the corporate entity that sits above the news division backed its reporters and backed its reporting, sometimes uncomfortably, sometimes raising an eyebrow. But part of what made CBS News, CBS News, what we thought something different, something standalone, unique, was take on the controversial stories and whatever hell there is to pay that the corporation is going to back you. That in the same year, a few months before we broke the George W. Bush military service story, we broke the Abu Ghraib story. This was a story that when we first got on at Abu Ghraib, I said to myself, I hope it isn't true. I actually prayed I hope it wasn't true. But uh, the more we dug into it, the more we realized this was outrageous behavior in our names that was being kept secret. So we broke that story in the early part of 2004. We weren't smart enough, and I fault myself because I was the leader of our effort, such as it was leadership, that the, the corporate DNA had changed. CBS, had, the corporation had been sold several times It was now a worldwide conglomerate. It had a lot of things it needed out of powerful people in Washington. And I wasn't smart enough, quick enough, to understand 
that the whole dynamic had changed between the corporation and the news division. So we broke the Albert Graves story, which caused a good deal. We had trouble getting it on the air. Um, a lot of questions were asked, and bluntly put, they tried to keep the story off the air. They ran it, but there was uh, unease about running a story, that a secret had been kept. We found the secret. We exposed the secret. Great story. Yes, a good piece of journalism. But the corporate lobbyists in Washington and others were very uncomfortable with it. Then we come back in the fall with a story that was true, picking up on the movie. The name of the movie is Truth. Uh, you would expect a movie called Truth to be accurate, and it is accurate. That we reported a true story. We didn't do it perfectly. We made some mistakes in the process of getting the truth, but that didn't change the truth of what we reported. Now, you or somebody listening may say, well, what truth are you speaking about? Well, two quick things. Fact one, fact. Everybody's entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Fact one, that a younger George W. Bush, through his father's powerful political influence, got put in a special protected so-called champagne unit of the Texas International Guard as a way of ensuring that he and the others, many of whom were the sons of influential people, wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. Now, that's a fact and indisputable. Fact two, after George W. Bush got in the Air National Guard, he did pretty well by some accounts, better than pretty well for a while, but then he disappeared for a year. Nobody disappears in the U.S. military for a year without accountability, but he did. So those were the bedrock facts of the story we reported. And in the process of putting this together, those partisan political forces and ideological forces who found this a very inconvenient story, they couldn't attack the hard rock facts two of which I just outlined to you. So they look, where is the story weak? And so they concentrated on the documents, and they succeeded. They overwhelmed CBS, overwhelmed us, those who reported it, CBS News and CBS Corporation, by making the focus not on the, the hard rock truth of the story, but rather the process by which we arrived at that truth. And they succeeded. Now, I, I want to ask you about that because I have read as much as I could about both sides of this argument. Right. Just to, And the argument that you hear in, in response to this, and I am just playing devil's advocate. Oh, I understand. Sort of, first of all, why incorporate the documents in the first place then? You guys had people on camera who were saying things that, I mean, to me, I wonder if a part of you wishes that they just refer that you just referred to the documents because if you hadn't shown them on screen nobody would have picked them apart font wise and all of that in retrospect the answer is you bet yeah. <laughs> but going on you know as far as the the documents if you are going to use them while they may indeed reflect what actually happened isn't it incumbent upon any journalist but particularly at a place like 60 minutes to and maybe it's the producers you know is the one that has to do this but to not go with it unless you're 100% sure, which even the movie suggests you guys were not about the about the documents. It's a good question. And when does it reach a point, there's no way when you have a document 
to prove absolutely, completely, and without any doubt. So what is the standard? Now, in a criminal trial in a court of law, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Generally speaking, journalism, that's not enough beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to reach somewhere between something more than a reasonable, no reasonable doubt and absolute, complete, total proof. For example, with the Pentagon Papers, a very famous case, uh, they weren't dealing with the originals of that. And I do agree that ideally we would have been able with the documents to say there's no reasonable doubt about the documents. I didn't think then, I, don't th- I haven't thought since then, and I don't think now there was any reasonable doubt about the documents. But I understand when people say, well, Dan, that's one thing for you to have that opinion, but you didn't prove it. Now, on the other hand, we, we're now, what, 12 years beyond the case. Nobody has ever proven the documents were not what they purported to be. But I agree that in a perfect world, we would be able to prove the documents beyond the point we proved them. I thought then, and as I say, and still think, that we, we proved them to every journalistic standard. There are plenty of people in journalism who do not agree with that, and part of what the movie Truth is about is about the dilemma of we knew what the story was. We had proven the story. And you say, well, wouldn't you have been better off without the documents? In retrospect, the answer is yes. We could have put the story on without the documents. We use the documents as part of the supporting evidence, and here's why. I don't mean to get into the swamp here on this, but I think it's important people understand. What was in the document, what was said in the document, corresponded to everything we knew about the case, and is true to this day. For example, Colonel Killian, who signed the documents, his secretary, main secretary, read it, told us on camera, that's exactly what Colonel Killian thought. That's exactly the way he said it. She said, I didn't type this particular document, but I'm telling you that's what he said. So if you will, as a reporter, part of your job is to connect the dots. So we had all this other evidence, and everything in the documents was true we knew to be. The only question was, well, okay, what's in the documents is true, but are the documents, were they actually signed by Killian? Now, the very fact that we're talking about it shows you the success of those who wanted to attack the story. They changed the conversation, and for this I give them credit if that's the right word. They changed the conversation from, is the story true, to, well, what about these documents that they used in support? And I think that's a fair argument. I don't agree with the conclusion of that argument. I think it's a fair argument. What did you make, because this is another big part of the, of the film, of the way that CBS conducted itself after things came into question. Because uh, let's just recap for people that, first of all, on so the, the story aired on September 8th, 2004. On September 20th, after kind of standing behind you guys, from what you've said in other interviews, you felt coerced into doing this apology about uh, acknowledging on the air that the documents, that you could no longer stand behind them. Yeah. Point That's point one. And that then they, this investigative commission was founded, which was perhaps not the the most objective in, in some ways. And then this whole idea that it was somehow necessary that prior to your 25th 
anniversary at CBS News, which was to be your planned retirement, that this somehow had to be yeah. dealt with before then. So what was your general sense of how they went about it? Well, what happened was that the corporation, true to CBS history and tradition, stood behind our reporting because they knew it was true. Much later, much later, emails surfaced in which, in their own conversations, president of the news division says, listen, let's don't forget the story is true. His corporate correspondent, with whom his correspondence is back, that's so, but that's not the issue. Right? So the corporation at its very top levels of the corporate entity was getting pressure from lobbyists in Congress. The corporation needed some things out of powerful people in Washington. The lobbyists were saying, if you will, under the radar, listen, this story is killing us. And in short, the, the corporate entity caved for their, for their purposes. Uh, they stopped backing us. Now, they have an old different story, which you can get from them, but I think the record clearly shows they caved. And part of their caving was to say, well, we'll apologize, not for the story, but for the documents. This is an extraordinary moment, I would say, in American journalism history in which we have a story that's true, but we're going to go on the air with an apology for putting on part of the story. But part of their caving also was to name a, quote, independent commission. I put it in quotation marks because it wasn't independent. They put this commission together uh, to, to, quote, investigate. It was never designed to determine whether the story was true or not. It was designed, why was all this hell raised <laughs> behind it? Uh, this was a kangaroo court, to put it bluntly. I'm always advised to use general language, but it's not in me. <laughs> that they appointed as head of this, quote, independent body that's going to investigate how we reported a story. They appointed uh, Richard Thornburg, who'd been a high-ranking official in the Richard Nixon administration, was a personal friend of the Bush family. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, it was a phony from beginning to end. And its purpose was to give the corporation a rationale, a public rationale uh, for firing, getting rid of the people who were responsible for the story. I'm smiling here because I fear that someone listening to this podcast may say, man, all of this confuses me, I'm not sure. And, but you set it up well, that the movie Truth, at one level, uh, it's a, a terrific story, I think, a narrative of how it happened that a group of very experienced reporters reported a true story and they all lost their jobs as a result. But at a deeper level, what the film is about, and I'm happy to say that my experience now is that many people have seen the movie, understand it. At a deeper level, what it's about is what's happened to the news, why it's happened, how it's happened, and why you should care about it. And it raises the question of what kind of news do we want going forward? Because we have now, and again to put it bluntly, more than 80% of the national distribution of news in this country is controlled by no more than six very large corporations. My count is four, but some people say six. 
all of those very large conglomerates, they have things they want out of power in Washington, whether that power be Republican or Democrat at any particular point. And of course, power in Washington, no matter who has the power, they want softer coverage from the networks. So you have a situation where these very large corporations are in bed with powerful politicians. And what happened to us, the powerful politicians, beginning in the White House and with the president, were complaining to the corporation, you've got to do something about this story. Uh, well, what are we supposed to do about it? Well, you can start by disowning the story. Now, the corporation never retracted the story. There's some confusion about them. Never retracted the story. The documents, the documents themselves were never proved to be, quote, fraudulent or, quote, forgery. I put it in quotes because frequently in the newspapers now it's just, well, they dealt in forged dockeries. But the the spine of this is the corporation, for its own purposes, caved, decided, listen, we got to get rid of these people. They were constantly causing us problems. They've caused us problems with Abu Ghraib. Now they come back with this story. <laughs> so that's what happened. And I will say this about the film, the movie, that it's extremely well acted. Whatever anybody thinks about the film, the acting is terrific. And, and uh, it must be neat to have Robert Redford play you in his second great journalism movie. That's pretty, uh, of, all, of all people, that's, a, that's quite a compliment. But with our last uh, two minutes here, I'm looking at the clock. I want to make sure to ask just very briefly a couple other quick things. So sorry to rush here. That's but, right. And um, I'll try to be brief. So for a while, it seemed like even though this this whole experience clearly and understandably left a better taste in your mouth, it seemed like you were basically willing to kind of not let it go, but just quietly let it fade away. I've read a, a, a cute story that on the night of your last evening news broadcast, you had a undergarment that, that kind of conveyed how you really felt, and maybe you can <laughs> share share that. But it seemed like it bothered you, understandably, that the other people who had been kind of criticized for their work on this story, Mary Mapes included, and the other producers who lost their jobs, basically settled for silence. And they have their reasons. It was hard for them to get work, yeah. I guess, or whatever. But you were not going to do that. And, and in fact, you sued CBS. So if you can just share how this left you feeling about this place that you considered home for so long on the night of that last broadcast, and then just generally speaking. Well, on the night of the last broadcast, it is true that uh, on my first broadcast in the anchor chair, a friend of mine had given me an undershirt, uh, and I recognized this as a family program. No, you could say whatever you want. You say. The, the letters, capital letters, F-E-A, uh, which roughly stood for flip them all. Yeah. <laughs> and I saved the T-shirt, and so on the last right. night of the broadcast, I wore that T-shirt. Um, I had 44 great years at CBS, I loved CBS and still do. It's a great national institution. Would I have had it end differently for me, of course. But until the movie started being made, it was well behind me that I went on and uh, worked full-time doing investigative reporting and in some ways among the most satisfying years I've had. And so I had it in my rearview mirror. For Mary Mapes and some of the others, Mary Mapes has been ostracized in journalism. She's not worked in journalism since she was fired by CBS News. But that was all behind me until they started to write the movie. I never thought the movie would get made. Uh, after it got made, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. 
but it brought it back to the fore, and of course it had me thinking about it. But uh, you know, my attitude has been, uh, I was really lucky to work at CBS News. I'm very proud of the career I had. Uh, I'm a great believer you are what your record is, and my record there is what it is. Tremendous. And for those who say, well, but it didn't end very well, I say, well, you know, life sometimes goes that way. Right. And about the movie, of course I would have preferred they make a movie about my coverage of Martin Luther King or the Kennedy assassination. But again, life doesn't always work out that way. Last two things. The state of journalism, even in the few years since you left the anchor chair, and I I will name some names you don't have to unless you want to, but I will say I look at what's happened, whether it's the Larry Logan situation or Brian Williams or a number of things that to me – vastly exceed what happened in your situation, and yet these people are still at work and, and in, in not really that affected uh, tremendously. And I just wondered, you, you mentioned that journalism standards have eroded a little bit, and maybe the audience's expectations have as well, but you know, as you think back to the people you worked with when you started, whether it was, I know you met Murrah, you met some of these other legends and, and became one yourself, what would, what would they and what do you make of all of this? Well, there's been a deterioration of the standards. There's been what I call a corporatization, politicalization, and trivialization of the news. You know, I'm an optimist by nature and by experience. And the problem right now is that finding an institution or a person who will finance quality journalism uh, has become increasingly difficult. And this is part and parcel of why the standards have gone down. There is some great journalism being done these days. You have to work a little harder to find it these days. And I do think that as we go deeper into the internet or digital age, that a way will be found, a new business model will be found that will allow for more investigative reporting and more first-class international reporting. And the final question is is this do you still watch an evening news broadcast? And if so, what? And, I do. And part, I'm sorry to do a part <laughs> B, but because uh, I have to. Uh, and, and then the big picture is really many years from now when all of us are gone, what is it that you hope people think of first when they think of Dan Rather? Well, as to the first, uh, I'm all news all the time. I have a passion for covering news. I have a lot of flaws, but I think even people who don't like me for one reason or another would <laughs> at least give me that I have a passion for news. And I flip around on the evening news. I watch one one night, one the next night, one the next night. Sometimes I cheer, sometimes I curse. (laughs) Uh, As to the future, look, I have no illusions that it's easy to have them when you do television and you're on the air a lot. But everything in television is fairly ephemeral. Uh, Looking ahead 15, 20 years from now, I don't think anybody will know who Dan Rather was or for that matter care, nor do I think they should. Uh, I think the idea of, of doing something, leaving footprints in the sand, a legend. If you find a cure for polio or cancer, you're a great man. Uh, if you do a half-decent job, even a half-decent job on television news, that doesn't make you great at all. But I have no illusions about that, that legends. There's really, in my mind, there's only one standing legend in broadcast news, and that is Edward R. Murrow. Uh, that a lot of other names have gotten well-known over the years, including a certain degree of my own. Uh, But I think it's foolish to be thinking about uh, leaving any legend or anything that's iconic 
it's not in the nature of television for that to happen. Well, as long as I'm around, you will be remembered, and I appreciate you doing this, and thank you so much for uh, a lot of great years. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.